Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 158, The Zen of Zen History. In this episode, we speak with Buddhist filmmaker James Zito about his newly released documentary on the history of Zen Buddhism called Inquiry into the Great Matter. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today in the Boulder studio with James Zito. James is a Buddhist filmmaker who, in 2003, released his first film called Compassion and Wisdom, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and then has a new film that's being released called Inquiry into the Great Matter, A History of Zen Buddhism. And you can find out more about the DVD and also about how to order it on historyofzendvd.com. So, James, thank you so much for taking the time to come down to the studio and speak with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Glad to do it. So, I know your personal background is in the Tibetan tradition, your personal practice history and background. Is that true? Right, yeah. And the first project, Compassion and Wisdom, was really, I know it included other things beside the Tibetan tradition, but when I watched it, it really was kind of focused on that, and it made sense given your background in history. But then in this one, you've gone completely to a new tradition, and I was wondering what inspired you to cover the Zen tradition as opposed to continuing in the, in the traditional lineage you're most close to or familiar with? Well, for that compassion and wisdom, and also for personal reasons, I had been going back and forth between here and Nepal quite a lot, Nepal and India. And uh, as you're aware, if you've been over to Nepal, sometimes you will stop at Tokyo on the way. And I took some time to check out, I want to stop over for a few days and just check out Japan. And, uh, you know, I just bonded to the place right away. And I just, uh, I was very impressed by so many of the things that I saw in Japan. I wanted to learn more about the aesthetics. I was very impressed by the aesthetic of the gardens and the calligraphy and the temples. And I, I wanted to, to learn more about about that. So I made a resolution to myself that I should, you know, travel to Japan more extensively. And I did do that. I thought that Zen Buddhism, like a history of Zen would be a good topic for a television program because there are so many things, visually rich possibilities there in all the things that you could document, the temples and the art and incorporate that with trying to uh, paint a picture of the lives of some of the great exemplars of the Zen tradition that you could put a lot of elements together and hopefully come away with a pretty decent looking television show. So that's how I got started on it. And uh, spending time in Japan, I also became interested in the kind of contrast. Japan is a very like an ultra modern society. They've got the most modern country really on earth. I mean, everything is so automated and, and there's just, just so much integration of media and just every kind of thing going on there. And at the same time, it's got this thousands of years old history 
of Buddhism and their own Shinto beliefs and, you know, all this stuff. So it's very interesting to see how these things can coexist. And I was very interested in the kind of contrast between the modern Japan and the ancient traditions of Japan. I really wanted to learn more. So anyway, I started making this film and I traveled to Japan a number of times. Each time that I went, I was more informed than the time before. And I was able to understand more of what I was seeing and there's a guy named Roland Barth. He was like a semiologist and he wrote a book about Japan called Empire of Signs. There's so many embedded signs in, in Japan. There's so many things that are there. And by learning more about Zen over the course of making the film, I, w- I think I was able to see things that I didn't see the, you know, the first and second time I see more and I was able to, bring that in to the film as well. So I hope that I was able to, the film as much a vehicle for my own learning as it is for trying to help other people learn about it. So, you know, it's like a we all kind of do it together. Yeah, and one thing I was struck by watching the film is just this amazing historical overview of both Zen Buddhism and then where it came from, the Chan tradition right. beforehand, and then the I was really fascinated by some of the things that were mentioned in there, like that Japan had once been in trade with China and then for, for like 200 years basically stopped trading. Right, and exactly. That, and it was so fascinating to hear these different aspects of how the tradition was affected by all these other things that normally wouldn't hear about if you're just like a Zen practitioner in the West, for instance. So that was really cool. And one thing I was also struck by in the film was, were the uh, these famous Zen masters that you spoke about, people like... Hakuin and Ikkyu and Ryokan, these amazing Zen masters. And I was wondering which of these people, if you could talk about one or two, really struck you in a way that that you were surprised by through your research for the film. Well, in the film, I examine the lives of a number of the greatest Zen masters, as you say. One of the ones that really struck me as a, a longtime student and a practitioner of Buddhism myself is probably the greatest Zen master in Japanese history, known as Daito, Daito Kokushi, also known as Shuho Myocho. And he is just uh, remarkable on many, many levels. His story is very famous in, in Japan, well known by the Japanese, but maybe, I'm, I'm sure, not so much here in the West. Well, Daito is just a naturally great student, very well educated. And his acumen, his mastery over the corpus of the Zen literature was very much praised by his teachers. He studied under the greatest Zen masters of the time, the master Koho Kenichi and another master, Nampo Jomyo, was very, very famous. And he was a model student. He was well on his way to becoming an abbot of a a great Zen temple. Everything about his training was of the highest standard and, uh, After a number of years of training, he had a very great breakthrough, like an enlightenment experience, and he brought his experience to the teacher. That's the tradition you present your understanding to the teacher. And uh, the teacher was very, very impressed with Daito's experience, and he passed him, he passed him on his experience. He said, yes, the tradition is to give a sort of a certificate of enlightenment. So the teacher gave him such a certificate, but he added on at the end of it a very unique 
kind of instruction. And he said to Daito, although your experience is perhaps greater than mine, I want you to refine your training by yourself for a period of 20 years. You're not to assume the role of a teacher for a period of 20 years. And, of course, you're bound to follow your teacher's uh, advice and your teacher's injunction. So he, he did continue his training, which is known as sometimes called Shotai Choyo in Japanese, a post-enlightenment training for a period of 20 years and basically living like a beggar in and around Kyoto, a lot of times near the 4th Street Bridge called the Gojo Bridge. Beggars and homeless people used to just live underneath that bridge or around there. And the many experiences that he had during this period, really deepening his understanding of Dharma and Zen, this period really underscores a major theme in Zen and Buddhism in general, which is the importance of putting the teachings into practice in the real world, not just inside the cloistered confines of a monastery or a Dharma center or something. The practice of Zen and Buddhism in general is relatively useless just in a vacuum. It has to be practiced and applied in the real world, not only in an artificial environment. So Daito had many experiences on one one of the famous experiences that he had. He was just sitting there meditating. There were these samurai guys. They'd go out and like test their sharpness of their swords, just like killing these killing beggars or homeless people. And he, uh, you know, he had an encounter with these with these swordsmen, in which he was just sitting in meditation, and they came basically to kill him. And he was able to turn their minds away from doing that. I mean, they, they were so impressed by his absolute stability in meditation and, and, and complete lack of fear or any kind of apprehension that they became his students, I guess, basically. His fame started to spread amongst the community of people in the city and the uh, it got to such a point that two of the, the emperors, one was the sitting emperor, the other was the uh, emperor that had been emperor for a little while. He was the retired emperor. Both of these sought him out and became his, his students. So that's another aspect of the story which is very famous. The fact that the emperor of Japan, the most prestigious person in the nation, was seeking spiritual advice from a beggar right. in the streets of Kyoto is a remarkable thing. Mm. And uh, it has some parallels to the life of the Buddha himself, really. As an aside, I know that uh, Roshi uh, Bernard Glassman has this kind of a homeless retreat where people go out and they sleep on the streets and, you know, they they don't have a place to stay. They just go out on the streets. And and, uh, I know that that's a a conscious allusion to uh, the experience of Daito. And I think it's a great uh, and admirable continuation of his uh, legacy. Another uh, master that I profiled in the film that I found to be personally fascinating is Ikkyu, Ikkyu Sojin, one of the most famous and beloved Zen masters of Japan. He's a kind of iconoclastic, personifies the kind of archetypal iconoclastic nature of a, of a Zen master doing things that you never, you know, you don't expect playing a prank on you or just doing something that you don't expect. He was famous for his criticism 
of the Zen institution, which at the time had sort of uh, begun a decline into uh, a kind of spiritual materialism period. I mean, the Zen was patronized by the emperors and the great aristocrats, and there was a lot of Zen art that was being produced, kind of a, a Zen culture as well as the actual nuts and bolts training of Zen. And I think EQ was disappointed by how a lot of the members of the Zen institution were just, they were trying to use Zen as a vehicle for becoming famous or having a very cushy life in the monastery, being well-fed, and their training was suffering at that time. Also, he was a great poet, a maverick, Zen artist, instrumental in the development of a number of elements of Zen that have become fixtures of the modern tradition, such as the tea ceremony, elements of calligraphy, the Daitokuji tradition of calligraphy, very strongly influenced by EQ, as well as a kind of growing trend, which was to bring Zen out of the monastery to the lay people of Japan. It's stressing that it didn't need to be strictly monastic tradition. It could be utilized to great benefit by the lay people and just ordinary people. He spent a lot of time out in the countryside, up in the mountains in retreat, in and out of the monastery, but also just uh, one of the things that he's also famous for is uh, his sexual exploits. I mean, he spent a lot of time in the brothels of Kyoto and in Japan and wrote about his sexual experience very graphically in his poetry. In this, he sort of uh, brings to mind the Mahayana ideal of a total immersion in the world, not turning away, not negating your life experience, but bringing everything in life to the path, sort of like a lotus flower, which is a symbol of purity, growing up from the mud and the filth, blossoming into a beautiful, pure and clean flower. This is kind of a living koan by flouting the monastic rules and the uh, hypocrisy of the time, indulging in drink and sex, kind of a living koan forcing us to re-examine and decide for ourselves where we stand on important aspects of Zen and Buddhist doctrine. Instead of merely accepting these truths as dogma, he echoes the teaching of the Buddha that the doctrine should be not merely accepted on faith alone, but carefully examined and experienced for ourselves. So he's a fascinating master, very well known in Japan, much loved. A lot of stories about him when he was a, a kid in the monastery. He was a entered the monastery at the age of five and uh, doing all kinds of pranks. And uh, there's even like a famous cartoon strip of EQ over there in Japan, like a mm. kind of uh, Japanese comics. So he's uh, very much loved in the Japanese tradition. Cool. Thank you for sharing some of your uh, personal reflections on those uh, Zen masters. And there are lots of other ones profiled in the film that are really fascinating. So the last thing that I wanted to speak with you about and this was the topic of the last part of your film, which is this transition of Zen to the West and then also the state of Zen in Japan. One thing that you mention in the film is that there's something of a decline happening in the Zen tradition. Uh, you'd mentioned the kind of uber-modernity in Japan now and always-wired, hyper-modern culture that they exist in. And then in your film, you mentioned there's as little as a thousand Zen monks living and practicing in monasteries right now in Japan. And 
that their primary role in some ways is as funeral directors. So I, f- I found that really fascinating. And I was wondering, while you were in Japan, because I know you went there several times for the filming and research, what your personal observations were about the state of Zen in Japan and kind of some things that you noticed both on the positive side and also on the more critical side. Well, I could speak a little bit about my own experience in making the film in Japan. You know, I came up upon some obstacles. I had the opportunity to visit a large number of Zen temples and film a lot of the great art treasures contained in those temples, but I must confess that my own ignorance of the Japanese language and the sometimes frustrating nature of the Japanese bureaucracy it prevented me from accessing a lot of the Zen treasures and temples which are closed to the casual observer, places that I really wanted to go. I just couldn't get access to those places. I had to really push myself to get the footage that I needed and rely on some unconventional ways. And also I just film, shoot video at the temple or something. I I know if I ask permission, they're going to say no. So, you know, I have to say, like, just do it. And uh, if they don't notice, it's cool. (laughs) If they try and stop me, you know, of course I'll stop shoot first and you know try not to ask any questions <laughs> later <laughs> so that's one of the things but I, I did have uh good cooperation with some of the great faculty at a place called hanazono university which is basically a zen university in kyoto it's administered by the mu shinji temple that's the largest of the great rinzai temples now um, operating in japan and i was given great access to the temples and at Miyoshinji and Tofukuji, a guy that I interviewed was uh, a caretaker of a temple in the Tenryuji lineage, and I got to go there, which was you know usually closed off to um, visitors. So I did get some good access behind the scenes, and I was very grateful to those people for helping me because I wouldn't have been able to get access to those things uh, otherwise. But uh, returning to what you said, it has been said that the pace of modernity in Japan is sort of rendering Buddhism an endangered species there. And I think that's very regrettable. And I've seen articles saying that, uh, you know, in a hundred years, there won't be any live lineages of, of Buddhism in, in Japan. I don't think that's true, but maybe that's an exaggeration, but it, it definitely is a shadow of its former glory. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that, I mean, particularly in a hyper accelerated society like Japan, the actual course of Zen training is supposed to take, you know, a dozen years, 15 years of totally committed training. And most, and at the end, what do you emerge with? <laughs> it's not something that, you know, the certificate, right? It doesn't, it's not something that's going to make you a lot of money or, or pay your rent. I don't know. And, you know, maybe if you are a temple priest, you will be able to have your livelihood from that. But the rigorous training the rigorous demands of the training and the and the time constraints make it difficult for most people to really embrace that. Most people just don't have the time required, 15 years, to, uh, to give to Zen training. So that's one of the reasons why it's sort of at an ebb point, I guess, in Japan. There's a great deal of interest in Zen here in the United States. I know that, and, and uh, you know, many countries around the world, and even down in South America, I've heard in Africa, everywhere around the world is interested in, in Zen. So it's definitely moving out of Japan into a Western environment. 
My wish is that I, whatever I can do through my own work to help facilitate the ongoing learning process of Western practitioners of Buddhism, I just believe so strongly that a deeper knowledge of Buddhism and the Buddhist tradition is going to be so beneficial for a wider audience, no matter how they come across it, no matter what level of interest they have, it's going to be of tremendous benefit. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.